Hello out there, Radio Land. This is 99.9, The Beehive. I know all your busy bees out there are just chomping at the bit to get through the work week. Buzz, buzz, get to work, drone. You're never leaving this office ever fucking again. Welcome, everyone. This is Watch If You Dare podcast. I am Derek, and joining me as always is Aaron. This is uh, the first one in a little while where it's just you and me this time. Yep, good to be back. I got my kiwi watermelon. LaCroix going on here and I am ready to go. Like a true podcaster, you're living that LaCroix life. The LaCroix. But yeah, other than that, let's get right into it. What have you been digging into lately that's horror related? So, um, let me think of what to start with. So, I have burned through the entirety of the second season of Mindhunter on nice. Netflix, nice. Um, which was kind of slow to start for the first issue or the first episodes, but in ended up being really really solid by the end i think honestly i might have enjoyed it more than this the first season simply because it after a minute drops the whole like serial killer of the week who are we gonna go interview kind of thing being able to see the guy who plays manson in once upon time in hollywood play manson in this show and just go full desert spider crazy mode was pretty fun so like this was manson with like the swastika like that he put on his forehead and yeah Yeah, this is like old been in prison for a while Manson and of course he's just like man you're in a prison you're in your own prison prison of your mind man like just that kind of bullshit but the bulk of the story actually gets into the Atlanta child murders which is a story that I kind of only knew the edges of and this is kind of a fictionalized take on it because of course the main characters in this show are not actual people Um, They are kind of loosely based on some real people, but they're not actual people involved directly in these stories. But the Atlanta child murders were specifically about these young black kids who were going missing or showing up dead during the early 80s in and around the entire Atlanta area. And for a variety of reasons, it just kind of got ignored. It was partly, okay, these are little black kids. Who cares? We're the racist white Southern police. And then a lot of it was there's just so many murders because it's Atlanta and every major city has a ton of murders so nobody's paying attention to like these few we're not looking for patterns because what is a serial killer really but there were also potentially weird bits and pieces of things that were interfered with by maybe higher up people in the police force and the city government and things like that so there's a lot of still to this day unanswered questions with that story but ultimately it was very very interesting it was a very kind of grounded way to go through that season where you don't have like an over sensationalized type killer but where the characters kind of go in the season's very interesting um, of course like the technical filmmaking aspects of that show are incredible but this is the first thing in a while where I've really really gotten heavy Zodiac vibes so, I mean Fincher executive produces the show he's kind of the one of the show runners for it so it definitely has the feel of Zodiac which is one of my all-time favorite movies post 2000 so i really really dug it i also re-watched river's edge recently um, which that one is an, another murder true crime related movie it's a group of teenagers who find out that one of the people in their friend group murdered his girlfriend and so <laughs> it's just them like dealing with that he kills her leaves her at the edge of the river and then basically just starts telling people oh yeah i killed my girlfriend and, like so- brings them to the body and shows it to him and that 
that kind of like immediately throws everything into a spiral. I didn't laugh because that is an awful fucking thing. I laughed because I immediately pictured someone in our friend group coming to us yeah. to like, hey guys, you want to see a dead body? And we go there. And it's just like one of our friends, that person's girlfriend. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with sure, you? Sure. But imagine if we were all like basically like trailer trash in the 80s. Oh, well, that changes things. Druggy punk kids and living terrible lives. Like that's kind of what this is. But it's very, very early Keanu Reeves. It is Crispin Glover's weird ass kind of right in the middle of him showing up in a bunch of stuff. Dennis Hopper plays a side character in it who's kind of the drug dealer guy that they all hang out with. It's really, really good. It's just really bleak. But it's a fantastic movie if you're into true crime stuff. It's just not at all... It has no levity essentially. Right. But the uh, the Blu-ray is pretty fantastic. It looks great for a movie that probably didn't get a lot of love in terms of keeping the original negatives and everything else. So for a movie that's that old and that kind of cult, it looks very good. Also saw It Chapter 2, which I won't get into too deep because we have discussed possibly doing a double episode with both movies together sometime. At the end of the day, I liked it. I thought it was good. I thought it was basically as good as the first one. I've I've heard this one's a little more divisive. Well, I think it's because everybody expected the tone to be different, which tonally, it's exactly like the first one. There's a lot of roller coaster horror that kind of gets you up and brings you down, and there's a lot of humor that helps break that up, and I think it could be partly the marketing, it could be partly the trailers, it could be just people's expectations, but I think a lot of people were just expecting it to be like incredibly dark and brutal and oppressive the entire time, and it's really not. You're dealing with grown-up versions of these same kids who were all cracking jokes and giving each other shit to the entire first movie, so it's just them as adults getting back together, and they're doing the same thing. You know, it's no different than, like, when our college friends, when we get together in groups, we're still ragging on each other, you know? But I thought it was very solid. I thought they did a good job handling the ending. It's slightly reworked to make it work for a movie, but it does at least have the guts to get weird. So, like, the ritual of Jude and all this other, like, specific stuff is brought up, but they obviously cut out the stuff they 100% don't need, like, you know, the child orgy. <laughs> yeah. So, I thought it was really solid. The emotional stuff in it is pretty good. You know, some good character feels. I think my biggest complaint about both movies as a whole is that for these being such high-budget, big-profile adaptations of, like, a really, really well-known novel from one of the greatest horror writers ever, dear fucking lord, why did they not have more practical special effects? Like, any time that it's actually Bill Skarsgård in Pennywise makeup on an actual practical set, it looks great. It looks fantastic. There's, like, a tangibility to him being there for the actors to work with, for, the you know, just all the other things to kind of bounce off of, but... I don't know. It's just a bit frustrating when, like, simple things, like any time that he goes into monster mode and his face stretches and his eyes roll backwards and his, you know, monster mouth comes out of his mouth, that could easily be done with a practical special effect. You know, that just takes making a fake head and pushing some monster mouth through and stretching it. You know, like, that can be done, and you can put that on set with an actor, light it right, and it will look so much fucking better than the special effects, which are just kind of iffy. You know, they're not like the most groundbreaking special effects at the end of the day. 
say because they're not quite putting enough money into the CGI to make it look really good, but they could also just probably put the money into this practical effects. They just would have to wait longer because you would have one practical effects company doing everything rather than farming out the like 30 set pieces to all these individual smaller CGI companies around the world to do at the same time. So yeah. Well, they pumped out the sequel pretty quickly because what, it came out just over two years after? Yeah, it was two years. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's quick turnaround and honestly, I'm very convinced that they probably had most of the adult cast on lock before they actually announced the adult cast because they match the kids so well. Really, really good matches for those kids physically. Performance-wise, I think everybody's pretty solid. Everybody's talking up Bill Hader, but I mean, he's also playing like the kind of most loud, big character of the group. But overall, I mean, I, I dug it. It was as good an adaptation I think we could ever really get from that giant tome of a book. So, you know, it was fun. I enjoyed it. So we'll we'll get around to doing both together eventually and kind of break down the thing as a whole. Hey, and if it makes enough movie, maybe they go in beyond the books, which would be, I think, a mistake. But yeah, I'm already starting to hear like dumb rumors of like, oh, yeah, well, there could be plenty of more room for more Pennywise stories after this, blah, blah, blah. Nah, I don't need that. Like, just leave it alone. And, you know, OK, I take it back on that note. I saw the new like final trailer for Dr. Slim which is Stephen King's sequel book to The Shining. Right. Um, so, you know, as much as I'm like, yeah, we don't need more Pennywise stuff, that story's done. I'm like, yeah, the sequel for The Shining, I'm excited for kind of. Yeah, but there's actually a book for it backed True. by yes. the, like, the original source, Stephen King himself. So, yeah, yeah, I don't think Stephen King has written any direct or indirect sequel to it. So, yeah, I mean, there's always been like rumors and Easter eggs that it's all a, a lot of his books are in the same universe. They all kind of take place. It definitely is in that kind of king verse because there are direct references to characters from other stories. Like, it is technically in the same universe as The Shining because Halloran is in both stories. Yeah. He's not directly in both stories, but, like, Mike's father knew Halloran. They were, like, in the same, like, military unit together, and they both came back and were in Derry and, like, opened up a club for a little while that burned down. So he mentions Halloran by name. So... It's, it is definitely connected in that universe all said and done. I think I read somewhere that Pennywise is also kind of loosely tied to the Dark Tower series as like one of the kind of monsters or yeah, Cthulhu-ass yeah. beings that are in that universe. I've never been able to make it through that series. Now that I've like kind of like finally cracked into Stephen King a little bit, I'm going to try to push my way through that series in the near future as well. But yeah, I saw the final trailer for Doctor Sleep. Looks great. I'm pretty excited. I really dig the casting, and I really, really loved Haunting of Hill House and Flanagan's other movies, so I'm curious to see it. Is this going to be a direct sequel to the Jack Nicholson Shining? It or? is, and that's what everybody has been curious about. Because that's that the smart like, choice. That seems like fucking sacrilege, but that's what they're doing, and everybody was curious about it for a while because they specifically have new actors and actresses playing some of the roles from the first movie. Oh my god. I'm blanking on her name right now, but Alex Essos uh, from Starry Eyes, she is going to be playing Wendy, and then... 
again, I'm blanking on names. I can't think of the actor's name, but they, they have another actor cast as Halloran and another young kid cast as Danny when he's young because the book technically starts in the 70s. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So there's like a scene of him like immediately after The Shining and then it picks up and jumps like 13 years later and then jumps another 10 years later. So they're probably going to weave them in as like flashbacks or maybe just do it as like an exposition scene right at the beginning of the movie or maybe, I don't know, but they in the new trailer, if you watch it, they have definitely recreated the overlook from the movie. Like it's right. the carpet, it's, you know, the rooms and everything else. So it is definitely a sequel to the Kubrick movie, which again, for a lot of film fanatics is going to be kind of sacrilegious, but it is what it is. And yeah. at least this is like a story from the man himself. I'll give it a chance. And honestly, I, I was kind of hoping that they did do a direct sequel of the Kubrick one. Cause Hey, if this one sucks, then we get to say like, Hey man, the shining's a great movie. And let's not talk about the sequel. Cause I think they're far enough apart where you can, if it, if Dr. Sleep does wind up sucking, you can just like disregard it. And the shining will always be able to stand alone as a movie. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking too, is what I hope they do is kind of like what the newest season of twin peaks did season three, the return where they had flashbacks of older scenes, like those older scenes from the original twin peaks series back from the late eighties, early nineties. And just had maybe flashbacks that include like scenes from Stanley Kubrick's movie, like with Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall and all that in them. Well, it looks like they're just actually recreating a lot of it. Like uh, you hear, you hear the twin girls. They definitely like rebuilt a set that is the hotel. Like they went to the weird fucked up floor plans and everything that we've joked about from that documentary and all <laughs> that not matching. Like right, right. they, they had literally rebuilt the Overlook Hotel and then like you know aged it so the trailer literally opens with grown Danny Ewan McGregor going back to the Overlook and it's all covered in like dust and spider webs and everything so I'm I'm kind of curious to see how it ends up but this is one where as hardcore Shining fan as I am I'm pretty excited about it because I did enjoy the book and I really really have a lot of optimism for this movie simply because of all the people involved you know I think I think Flanagan has been knocking shit out of the park with his last couple of projects and the cast of this looks amazing. So I'm, I'm down. And again, Stephen King wrote a sequel. So it's not like making a sequel to The Shining is really that much of a stretch of the imagination. Yeah. So that's all I've got to talk about for right now. Um, how about you? Uh, I actually have a little bit to talk about myself. So uh, I think not last episode since we did House last episode, but the episode before that, I had mentioned Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice, that game, as well as the book we sold our souls by uh grady hendrix i actually have finished both since i last brought that up uh starting off on hellblade again just a reminder it takes place in the eighth century you play as uh senua a picked warrior who is bringing the soul of her dead lover that's carried in his severed head and trying to bargain his soul back from the goddess hella and she's traveling through helheim but it also deals with psychosis and schizophrenia and so it's heavily psychological horror and I think I'd mentioned uh, in the last episode that I brought it up how it was kind of a combination of like an action game, an exploration game, a horror game, a walking simulator, all that. The second half of the game really leans way more into the horror and even a little bit of the action to the point where I just think this is now just a straight up horror game that has influences from other genres of video game. The last half of this is just I thought was a brilliant exploration of psychological horror with or without the psychosis and what it had to say on that. A nice touch I thought it was that after at the very 
very end and after the credits roll, they have a uh, URL that basically when you go to that URL, I should have written it down. I forgot what it was, but it provides URL saying if you're seeking help, if you think you're suffering from mental illness of any kind, here are here's a list of resources. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Again, it's up to your interpretation on how much of this is happening in Senua's mind, how much of it is in reality, or if she really is in Helheim and the fact that her own psychosis is making it worse or, you know, maybe hell is your own making kind of. But I did bring this up on House. Like any good horror, it has a lot of feels to it. Yeah. The ending was beautiful. I thought it was an incredible ending. I thought it was a great character arc for Senua herself and the way that they showed background information and like revealed her story and what happened to lead her to come to Helheim through her psychosis and these visions and all this handled very well. And then moving on to We Sold Our Souls, the book that I was reading by uh, Grady Hendrix. So that also went a lot more into horror than where I had described it before in the last half. And this one is more kind of like that Americana horror where it's showing America, like when you travel across America and you see, you know, gas stations and fast food restaurants and all these like rundown looking things. And it kind of can sometimes bum you out. There is a little bit of that like American dread in it, but also a lot of eldritch horror. Yeah. is revealed in this as well. It's a lot of fun. It, it's not like a super downer. Like, Senua's is pretty emotional, whereas We Sold Our Souls is more of like a roller coaster fun ride horror, and it really is kind of lo- a love letter to popular meta- metal. It doesn't take itself too, too pretentiously when it comes to the metal itself, but my only small critiques were that it gets a little pretentious when it's dealing with anything else outside of metal in terms of uh, music. There is a good bit where the some characters are having a conversation conversation about Dolly Parton that I really enjoyed. But other than that, like anytime other music is brought up, it kind of like this characters kind of have like uh, their noses up to it. And it does also, like I said, lean heavily into America being this place that has already kind of been taken over by demons, not literally, well, literally or figuratively, but the idea of just we are at the mercy of like these fast food restaurants, corporations, gas stations, yada, yada. Yeah, which is perfect for the movie that we're covering. Yes, exactly. <laughs> which is perfect for the movie that we're covering today. But again like any good horror it ends on a note of hope and I, I could see this book being made into a, a movie or even a mini series of some kind just like the image of the main character holding her guitar like beating eldritch horror abominations and things like that over the head like and it's written in such a way that it, it makes it all uh, very fun I highly cool. recommend it so We Sold Our Souls by Grady Hendrix and on that note now I have new things to share that I just started diving into so the next game I decided to try out after beating Hellblade is called A Plague Tale Innocence. And this came out actually earlier this year in March. I randomly saw a trailer for this and was really intrigued by like the look of it and the feel of it. So keep going. Yeah, I want to know how this game is ultimately. So it was marketed as like an action adventure kind of horror stealth game. I would say it again. This is more I would just straight up say this is survival horror because yes, there is some action there is uh, stealth as well and there's also kind of like puzzle solving but whereas like the puzzle solving is trying to get out of these environments that you're in that are incredibly deadly so I would say it is very much survival horror it takes place in 1348 with this family like uh, this family of nobles in the rural area being invaded by the English army and you take the roles of the sister and little brother and basically shit goes to hell and they have to escape like half their families killed they have to escape at the beginning of the game and they're trying to make their way to a doctor right now but this is also
also during the plague and they're also being chased by the inquisition the main bad guy or at least who i think is the main bad guy like you don't see his face his whole body is covered in armor his helmet the only slits are across across this whole helmet he looks metal as fuck but also evil as shit but the thing that this game is probably most well known for is literally the rats. Yeah. When you encounter the rats in this game, and I only played for the first chapters, which all three chapters were really intense, but I didn't get to the rats part until the third chapter. And just seeing it in a YouTube video or a gameplay doesn't do it justice until you're controlling the characters yourself and getting through these environments. But when I say that like rats fill the area and, the, and cover the entire floor and you don't see the floor, all you see are these rats with red eyes that are just kind of scurrying everywhere. I mean that like they programmed it to where there's thousands of rats in this room and they're pouring out of the walls and they're crawling all over each other over on the floor and they can't enter the light. So the mechanic in this game is you always need to stay in the light and like you're carrying torches to ward them off around you. you. If you get out of the light, you get eaten by rats eaten alive. So the third chapter was really honestly like a big adventure kind of puzzle sort of stage because each chapter seems like it's a level of a game and I think that's the way they paced it and this level was all about going through this environment surrounded by rats and doing kind of like light puzzles basically where you're trying to illuminate light to certain paths so you can continue going through it. There is a tad of supernatural elements like the rats themselves almost seem supernatural um, because they stay away from the light and when they get caught in the light they kind of instantly burn they're all having glowing red eyes there's a little bit of maybe something going on with the little brother as well but other than that I don't want to give too too much away on this game there are there are some action bits because the sister uses a sling and can at certain parts attack enemies with her sling or cause distractions with her sling it's really executed in clever ways I'm only three chapters in. I think there's over 15 chapters maybe in the game, so I'm just starting, but I'm loving the beginning of this game. That's something else I was kind of curious about. I'm kind of one of those weird people about video games where, like, if I'm going to pay 60 fucking dollars for one, I want it to, like, be more than just a handful of hours. So I was kind of wondering, looking at it, like, is this kind of one of those indie games that's going to be maybe, like, a eight-hour game tops? Or if it's going to be kind of a more, like, 30 to 40-hour long kind of game? So I'm, I'm curious to see, like, what your final thoughts are. If I had to guess from just the few hours that I played, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think it's going to probably fall more in the range of anywhere from 12 to 20 hours depending on how meticulous you are like searching the environments for certain items and other stuff to help you survive yeah but i did probably put in like over two hours maybe even close to three hours into it yesterday and like i said only got through chapter three i'm on i just started chapter four before i shut the game off so i think there's quite a bit left to it and uh once i get more through it or beat it i will let you know what my final verdict on it is but i'm enjoying the hell out of this game and just again you should do yourself a favor and go maybe look up a quick youtube video of just some gameplay with the rats but when they like whatever engine they use to have these hordes of rats coming out of everywhere is really impressive unless uh the idea of being eaten alive by ravenous rats freaks you out uh stay the fuck away from it but otherwise (laughs) it's i liked it and then 
literally actually right before we started recording this podcast, I started a new book. And speaking of our buddy Stephen King, I decided to start a new Stephen King book called Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And it's yet another anthology book. I think I'd mentioned earlier on an earlier episode how I, for whatever reason, love the hell out of Stephen King's short stories. And I've read one or two of his anthologies previously. Well, this is a one that I haven't checked out yet that he wrote back in 1992 or 93. And I just went through the first short story in it and there are about I think 23 or 24 short stories in it so it's a big hefty book and because that first short story I think was close to 50 pages long if not more than that so I enjoyed the first short story it was more of a realistic kind of horror situation thriller more than a horror but I'm sure that he'll have a little bit of everything in in this book and then the very last thing I want to mention is uh, Tool finally dropped their new album after how many years now? So I guess, and this is where it kind of still blows my mind, in high school, my handful of high school friends and I would usually just each buy a CD and then pass it around the entire friend group. This was kind of right when CD burners were becoming a thing in computers. So we had one friend in our friend group that like had an actual CD burner. And basically we would all just pass the discs around and pay him to like burn us copies. Which, okay, in retrospect, yes, we were all teenagers. We did not understand what like piracy really meant and everything else. It is what it is. That's how basically all teenagers share music. Everybody burned CDs and share music. Yeah. With me and my friends. Everyone I know did it. So, for context, I am class of 06. The May that we graduated, all of these albums, like, came out at the same time. And so each of us bought one and we, like, switched them around. So, Tool's last album, 10,000 Days, came out. Era Vulgaris by Queens of the Stone Age. Pearl Jam's self-titled album and Stadium Arcadium by Red Hot Chili Peppers. So those were the four that all came out at the same time. And when you hear those are the albums and that's the time frame in which this last Tool album came out, it's kind of mind-boggling. But yeah, I mean, it's it's good. I've listened to it. So it's, it's just, it's very Tool. It's kind of exactly what I was hoping for, but at least it's not like that last fucking Perfect Circle album where it's just Maynard whining about like kids these days on their phones, lol, lol, lol. Yeah, I, I was class of 07, and so I was a junior when this when 10,000 Days dropped. It dropped literally the semester after Katrina, like after everything opened back up and we were back in our high school in New Orleans. So, and it was an exciting time because I had basically, like my old friend group, they all had moved away or stayed where they relocated from the hurricane. So I basically started making a new friend group with like friends of mine in school who I never like hung out with outside of school. We were friends in school, but other than that we just kind of went our own separate ways and yeah we all started hanging out outside of school uh specifically one of our guests that came on earlier and i think night of the creeps evan he was one of those friends i made like right after katrina finding new people to hang out with well Ten Thousand days dropped same thing with us but it was interesting because of the packaging was so interesting on Ten Thousand days instead of like people burning that cd everyone just wound up buying it anyway because they wanted the packaging alone and it seems like fear inoculum did the same thing i heard the packaging for it is crazy. I had it ordered and shipped to my house, so I haven't seen the packaging yet. But once I get back to my house, I'm gonna I'm gonna rip it open and, and look at it. But I have listened to the album only once so far through, and my first in- 
initial impressions were positive. I know some people are saying like, give it a couple listens. I mean, that's kind of what you have to do. But yeah, same. I was super scared that they were going to go away from more of, I guess, that dark, ambient, kind of more progressive metal to like Maynard being angry that kids are on iPhones like he was with the perfect circle. And it's not. It's very much tool. And that's all I asked for. Whether or not it was worth the wait. I'm not sure, but I don't think about that. I'm just happy we finally have a new two album. Honestly, if I had to say, this album almost seems like it should have came out after Lateralis instead of 10,000 Days, because the sound of this album reminds me a shit ton of Lateralis way more than 10,000 Days did. Yeah. So, yeah, the movie we are doing is Mayhem. And now in Mayhem, one of the plot points in this movie is about a virus that removes people's inhibitions, their moral integrity, and basically lets them act out kind of their darker impulses, their darkest impulses. They still maintain a degree of intelligence, but they just kind of, like I said, moral moral inhibition is out the window. So with that in mind, Mansfield, how do you think you would act if you were in this situation under quarantine, whether it be at your workplace or somewhere else? If I were at my workplace, I would probably just break stuff. Like, I think that's probably the main (laughs) thing I would do is just I would destroy every piece of equipment and product that I, like, possibly could just for, like, the sheer, like, office space beat the printer with a baseball bat satisfaction. I would also probably just steal a bunch. That's (laughs) Like, I would just destroy everything and then, like, steal everything else. I mean, that's, that's kind of the main thing. Like, if inhibitions are out the window, then of course, if you're in a building with a lot of really good stuff, like one of your first inhibitions is going to be to make all of that really good stuff yours. So, I mean, that's probably it. I am generally a very chill person when it comes to like physical interactions with people. So, I don't think I would be like taking staplers to people's heads and smashing people's faces into, you know, lockers and stuff like that. I would mostly just be that guy who's like blowing things up and lighting things on fire gleefully I don't, I don't know that I would like hurt people as much as I would just like hurt the environment yeah honestly so I think I would go through a couple stages because uh, I mean I've admitted it already I've suffered from depression and anxiety so I think I'd go through stages of doing different things I think in the first stage I'd have like a major panic attack to the point where I'm crippled on the floor in a ball crying I'd go from there to probably doing the same thing you do is just smashing shit for the hell of smashing it again I don't think I would attack actual people, even the people who annoyed me, just because I don't really even have the desire to physically harm other people. So I don't think I would do that. I think I would also do the same thing, smash it. Then uh, the third stage would probably be me finding something that I like to organize, whether it be because like normally I I love organizing my comics. Like whenever I do my comics, there's just something calming about that. I enjoy doing it, but I think I would do it to like a crazy degree. So like I would destroy (laughs) this half of the room and then this half of the room out organize like all the loose leaf paper for some reason and write messages on all of them and like it'd be like two faces office that's what i was literally just (laughs) about to say it's gonna be like fucking two faces pintails from batman forever exactly yeah one half of the office is gonna be like pristine and well organized the other half is gonna be on fucking fire and then i think by the time the quarantine would be up i would be probably in like a a staff room or wherever food is just eating everybody's lunch (laughs) 
Just eating everybody's shit. That totally tracks, yeah. I, I think I would be down for some of that too, probably. But that first hour or so would be miserable because it would be a major depressive panic attack. Oh, yeah. So, before we actually get into the movie, I think we're going to do a quick little shout out to our friends at Podcoin. So, y'all, y'all know the drill at this point. Y'all have heard us talk about Podcoin. It is the way that you can earn cryptocurrency just by listening to the podcasts that you already listen to just by using their app to listen to them instead. So for every hour that you listen, you can earn pod coins, and then you can use those coins to either buy digital gift cards, or you can use them to donate digital currency to your charity of choice. So there are definitely lots of good options there. It's easy. Download the app from the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store and throw your podcasts on that you already listen to and get going. So it's pretty cut and dry. Um, We've been doing it for a while now. The service is easy to use, and their support staff and the rest of the community there is really great and supportive. So definitely check them out. Um, you can earn 300 bonus pod coins by using our referral code, which is DARE, D-A-R-E. Um, again, when you sign up, use the referral code DARE to get 300 bonus pod coins and start getting paid for listening. And on that note, on to the movie 2017's Mayhem. Welcome to the home of Towers and Smythe Consulting. TSE is a firm fueled by greed, duplicity, and moral decay. I'm gonna need some scouts! What the hell are you doing? Firing you. I'm not leaving this building until I plead my case. Sure. Good luck with that. What the hell is going on? Say hello to the ID7 virus. Stress hormone levels rise, causing inhibitions to drop and basic instincts to rise to the surface. All traces of the virus should be eliminated in approximately eight hours. What are we supposed to do for the next eight hours? Try to remain calm. Hey, extreme measures, right? This is our shot. I'm offering 150 grand for Cho's head. We're talking about murder here. You should be offering at least 450. Him? Yup. You want to do this the hard way? You're enjoying this, aren't you? I just kicked his head! So Mayhem is directed by Joe Lynch, who has done a couple of other projects. Um, I honestly have not seen any of his other movies. That's surprising. I really honestly only know him from the Movie Crypt podcast with Adam Green, which I've listened to kind of on and off throughout the years. I like their podcast because they are in the industry, so they have lots of industry people on. So it's good to hear some of that like insider perspective 
perspective of people who are really like in the struggle of trying to get movies made and the kind of commonalities of things that they all have to deal with and just hearing people's unique stories. So I've, I've enjoyed their podcast on and off over the years. So that's the, honestly the main thing I know Joe Lynch from because I have not seen some of his other work yet. But this movie came out around the same time as The Bilko Experiment, which we'll talk about because there's no real way to avoid bringing that other movie up. It actually, and it came out like I think a year or two after Belko as well. No, no, it came out the same year. It came oh, out they like, did come out the same year. Okay. Yeah, it came out within like six months. Matter of fact, the Belko experiment didn't start filming until after this movie was already made, but then came out six months before Mayhem actually ended up coming out. So they definitely kind of hit on some of the same general themes of aggravation with just corporate American work life and kind of the soul draining experience that that can be and you know just faceless corporations using people you know for just exploitative means etc so i did a quick google so it looks like in the united states belco experiment dropped on may 17th 2017 and yeah you're right about a uh, six months apart because then november 10th 2017 was mayhem yeah and heather and i saw belco experiment in theaters because it was you know basically the only kind of horror-ish movie that was out around that time of the year um, we were kind of just looking for something to go see the reviews were like generally positive the main thing that kind of had me interested was just James Gunn co-wrote it so okay cool I'm interested in going to see it and it was fine we enjoyed it for the most part but Mayhem came out later that year and everybody was really talking that up on all the websites that I go to and the podcasts I listen to and the general consensus was that it was just a lot more fun there was more of an edge to it there's definitely more like character and heart to Mayhem and definitely definitely that shows through you know as soon as Mayhem dropped on Shudder hey Shudder you listening (laughs) you listening Shudder come on give us give us that sponsorship let's do it give us a call you know how to reach us after it dropped on Shutter, Heather and I watched it one night and were generally kind of blown away because it's it definitely has the heart and the fun level that I kind of read about and I definitely enjoyed it more than Belco at the end of the day. I will say, I was not prepared for this movie. <laughs> like, I, I thought I knew what it was going into it and it exceeded what I thought it was going yeah, to be. Yeah, and, and you're the one that kind of wanted to do, initially, like to pull the curtain back, you wanted to do Belco Experiment. And I didn't even know Mayhem existed. I had heard yeah. of Elko, but not Mayhem. And I, this is where I like, since I have seen more stuff than you, I'm going to occasionally flex that a little bit. So I was like, you know, there's a better movie that's kind of the same thing that came out the same time that we should probably watch instead, just to kind of give it as much of like a bump as we can, since it is still an indie movie that needs like people's eyeballs on it. You know, it didn't get a huge, big, like theatrical push in the same way that Belko did. But I definitely, you know, wanted to give some support to Mayhem because that movie was great. Um, And now, you know, here we are. So, Which surprised me because, again, this is yet another maybe more indie than Belko was kind of horror movie, but it does not feel like an indie horror movie. This this feels like a movie that could easily flex its muscles in a widespread release. I don't know how much money it would make in a widespread release, but I think it would it would be capable of holding some audience uh, amount in major theaters. And one thing I'll say too, I th- you know, I think there is 
a level of filmmaking that is required to pull off a big giant idea like this with the budget that they had and you know i hate like shitting on you know something like belco experiments wasn't like terrible but mayhem had a budget of 2.5 million dollars belco experiment literally had double that budget but belco experiment looks cheap it looks cheap for the amount of money that they threw in it where this movie really looks and feels its budget like you can tell where you know things are definitely kind of put together by hand but that low budget inventiveness is what's really charming about this movie and gives it some character and the imperfections that are in this movie really do like give it some characteristics that are endearing where like I said Belco Experiment you know there's more money behind it there's more people behind it and it just looks cheap for the money you know you feel like there should be more to the movie for the amount that it got from a budget standpoint well maybe it follows like a formulaic kind of Hollywood major film script more than Mayhem does where Mayhem has a lot more heart and maybe totally. that, that's why it comes out that way and, and, and it absolutely does because Lynch has talked about how like this movie was definitely a reflection of where he was in his life and the job that he was working at that time and contrary to popular belief if you go to Hollywood and you make a movie you're not just a millionaire overnight you know most indie filmmakers pretty much struggle the majority of their careers to get projects off the ground and to get funding for projects and most of them have side gigs you know so it's not like one of those things where you make your first movie and just all of a sudden like oh god you're swimming in the big bucks and you've got a mansion and a pool and all this other bullshit you have a day job you know on that note shout out to our buddy Lamplew and his uh, Bigfoot movie because I do want him to do well I want this movie to succeed because I mean I'm sure you did too like I talked to him over not just months but years a couple years and he has been busting his ass on this movie for a while and trying to get it um, some notoriety so you're totally right when it comes to most filmmakers like actors probably never see the success that people think they would in Hollywood yeah and it's even harder now just because you know the market is so saturated it's so much harder to get funding than it was years ago where you know studios that had passionate people behind them would really throw you money to get projects done rather than kind of the bean counters that we have now and a lot of Wall Street types that are running studios and it's just all profit driven. You know, that's kind of the unfortunate state of where Hollywood is now is you have a great idea with a director that has talent and, you know, you might get a million dollars. Blumhouse kind of works on that model, but I think they do a good job for the product that they put out and for the kind of scale that they're going for. But the days of like $50 million horror movies are basically just gone. That's such a rare occurrence now that that happens. But Joe Lynch, like I said, he has a side gig. He has a podcast. He has a regular job on top of that. And he busted his ass to get this movie made. And, you know, so much of this movie is from his experience working a very buttoned-down, soulless corporate job that just kind of drove him up the wall. So this movie's coming from a very personal place in his life and reflecting some real fears that we have in society right now about the jobs that we work. 
work and Belko experiment again like is a good kind of what if Twilight Zone type premise but that's kind of all that movie ends up being at the end of the day yeah and kind of moving away from the comparisons to that movie and uh, more on like Joe Lynch and this film specifically I recognize Joe Lynch because after I watched this movie I did my usual thing of like pulling up the wiki wiki article maybe looking at a couple interviews and things like that and I didn't realize I already knew uh, at least one film from Joe Lynch called The Knights of Badassdom and the only reason I knew about this movie is because I randomly went to Comic-Con back in New Orleans I think in 2012 or 2013 and it just so happened that whatever random room I wandered into to just kind of take a break and see a panel it wasn't even really a panel I cared much about the topic I just wanted to kind of have a moment to rest and listen to some actors or directors talk about their projects and this movie was brought up and I don't remember if Joe Lynch was actually on the panel or not but they winded up showing about two or three minutes of it and I mean this movie had Peter Dinklage in it and granted by 2013 Game of Thrones was pretty popular at that point already and Peter Dinklage was kind of already a household name but even then like this movie kind of just like I totally forgot it existed until we watched Mayhem. So some of that and this is again kind of more that unfortunate this is how Hollywood works but from what I understand Joe Lynch has kind of disowned that movie because really? it basically got taken away from him by the studio and like completely butchered in the editing process reworked they I think they even like reshot a lot of stuff so it's a movie that like he does not look back on fondly and that might have been why he was not there because at that point he had basically just like washed his hands of the project and moved on and that's part of the reason why I haven't seen it honestly because you know if it's gonna be kind of a bastardized version of what he originally intended I'll put my viewing time onto other projects of his at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's a shame because I haven't watched it yet either, but I do remember liking that two-minute clip I randomly saw back then, and just a little bit I read up on about it, it is comedy horror, much like Mayhem, where Mayhem also is other subgenres, but... Yeah, it is a sci-fi, action, satire, comedy, horror. Workplace, yeah. horror. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Knights of Badassdom is more fantasy comedy horror, it seems like, so he obviously has a love for that kind of movie and on that note going like a little bit more into mayhem it was hard for me i had to sit and think about this for a little while of whether or not i would say this is more of an action movie or more of a horror movie because again if it is a horror movie it's the horror that doesn't really bother me too much it's realistic ish to a point i mean there is a fictional virus in this movie but otherwise it's pretty realistic it's just people being crazy and again that doesn't just bother me nearly as much as more supernatural stuff does but i thought about it for a while and i would say that yeah i'd say that this is either on the same level just as much of a horror movie as it is an action movie or maybe a little bit more of a horror movie because it's done very tongue-in-cheek and it's set up almost as glorification however i think the movie is doing that on purpose and the glorification isn't necessarily like this is rad isn't it it's more of like yeah this is still fucked up people are still dying you know even though we're having a good time like everyone's doing really shitty things to each other and in an environment that's otherwise normally safe and mundane and it's almost like the mask that people put on going into a workplace is finally peeled off and this is what people really think and really picture in their minds as they're being yelled at by their boss or trying to get a report done by the afternoon or whatever and not only is the horror gore related and vi- like heavy violence related it's like you had already touched upon uh, Mansfield it's a very Americana overworking just my life is nothing but working 
in a cubicle until I either die, which is probably what's going to actually happen, or retire. And I have to put up with shit on a daily basis and there's nothing I can do about it and I'm trapped. And not just that, but losing yourself, losing who you are and who you want to be and losing your identity and becoming this kind of soulless corporate drone. Yeah. You know, like our character starts off as and kind of gradually regains his humanity. And that's kind of where at the end of the day, like I do, I do come down the side of, you know, this is a horror movie first, everything else second, because the horror in this movie does not come from the supernatural. It does not come from any of this other stuff. It's, it's just at the end of the day, like what are our actual fears and anxieties in the real world? And let's put that in a fantastic premise. So it's definitely preying on, again, our fears of like losing our identity and losing our humanity. And how do we regain that back? Will we regain it back through just sheer violence and like pushback and like letting go of all the things that like hold us back and keep us in check and letting other people walk all over us, you know, at the end of the day. And it's definitely a movie about like fighting the man, but also like regaining your humanity in the process instead of devolving and losing your humanity in that pursuit. And that's one thing that's that I really love about the movie. And on top of the character stuff where the two leads have a lot of charm and chemistry and actual story arcs to their characters. Yeah. The whole story is positive. It's not one of these movies about regression of this main character to this animalistic state and it ends with this bleak like oh see fuck you kind of ending like you can never win and again like hate bringing it back to Belko but like that's kind of how Belko ends. It's kind of that bleak like oh well everything just went bad sorry. This movie is definitely about like empowering these characters and pushing them back to where they need to be to survive and like become who they were supposed to be this entire time and regain their humanity and there's a positive uplifting note and there's a lightness and a funness to this movie that's really really like charming and fun to watch so I I definitely enjoyed it Heather really enjoyed it a lot and it's, it's just fun it's really really solid y'all should definitely check it out it's on Shutter. it's on Amazon so give it a watch for sure I, I give it thumbs up as well I, it was a good time it was a real good time and I agree with you completely on all those points it, uh, actually by the end of it it is a hopeful movie which makes me laugh given what a lot of the stuff that happens in it, yeah. imagery because like on a surface level too another fear that uh, something that reacted in me when I was watching it is I instantly thought about mass shootings in the workplace like people going yeah, to post- totally. postal in the 80s and 90s like at post offices that was immediately like the imagery of scenes of all the crazy shit that was happening again in a very mundane collared shirt tie business skirt or business suit sort of environment but then it being turned on its head with blood smeared on all what would otherwise be like these very white or bland looking cubicle office spaces and shit on fire like a copier and like just papers thrown everywhere it very much elicited the the idea of how quickly a safe environment like that could just become a bloodbath and again i went instantly went to thinking about people going postal yeah but then the other thing also too is i think the linchpin of this movie the entirety of it is summed up by the quote that the melanie character states that yeah no one ranger thinks it caused the flood and that goes hand in hand with losing yourself and becoming yet another drone in there but another thing I I thought about was to give you a, a better idea of like what's going on here is this movie is other movies rolled up into one to me it is crank it is 28 days later it is die hard and maybe like a little bit of Tarantino all like rolled up and mashed into this fucking crazy ball of energy yeah 
totally. As far as the cast is concerned, the movie stars Stephen Yen from Walking Dead as the main character. And this was kind of the first thing I had seen him in outside of Walking Dead. He was also in Bong Joon-ho's movie Okja, which was on Netflix a while back. Um, and he's done a lot of voice work on cartoons and video games once I kind of started looking him up a little bit more. But Stephen Yen was like definitely one of my favorite people on Walking Dead. Yeah. So I was really delighted to see him in this movie and he's fucking fantastic. Samara Weaving as well. This was the first thing I'd seen her in, um, which by the way, she's Hugo Weaving's niece. I didn't know that. So that's interesting. That's fantastic. I mean, and they crush it in this movie, by the yeah, way. they're fantastic. Like, I mean, there's not really a bad character or bad actor or actress in this movie, but I mean, with a movie that pretty much the success of it is all on these two characters and how they interact, Steven and Samara crush their roles. And yeah. Steven Yoon's character name is Derek Cho, and he spells Derek the correct way. D-E-R-E-K, <laughs> like I do. Yeah, Samara Weaving's also in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Netflix is The Babysitter. She was in the Amazon adaptation of Picnic at Hanging Rock, and she's currently in the movie Ready or Not, which I still need to try to squeeze in if I get some time, which is her marrying into this board game conglomerate's family, and they're all, like, weird and twisted, and on the night of their wedding, they, like, go on this crazy, like, hide-and-seek game through their mansion to murder each other. Yeah, they're basically Craven the Hunter's family. Yeah. That movie is straight up a Spider-Man storyline in, in a recent arc with Craven the uh, Hunter and his family. So she's definitely bound to some big things as well, and I'm kind of excited to see what she does going forward. The rest of the cast, since this movie was filmed in Serbia, Joe Lynch basically just called around to find these, like, office parks and abandoned buildings and just ended up going with wherever would give them, like, the most time to film. So he looked at, like, New York, Toronto, Chicago, New Orleans, um, but ended up doing Serbia because that's where he had shot his previous movie, Everly. But the rules and how things work filming-wise over there, they basically had to cast mostly either UK, European, Aussie, or Serbian actors. They had to have, like, certain quotas for union purposes. So most of the cast is going to be European of some kind. Steven Yen and then Dallas Roberts are basically the only Americans in this movie. But, you know, they filmed for like three weeks in this office park. You know, it was like an abandoned building that they kind of had free reign to like wreck as much as they want for the most part from what I've kind of seen in red. And I had no idea this was in Serbia. Yeah. They do such a good job of making the setting feel so much like an American workplace that I didn't even know it was filmed there until you mentioned it. Yeah, they did a real good job of dressing the sets appropriately and everything else. There are some moments where certain actors and actresses, their accents don't hold. The dialogue comes out kind of weird because the, you know, enunciation's a little bit off from them trying to pull American accents, but it's stuff that's totally forgivable, you know, at the end of the day, because, again, the, like, small imperfections in this movie are what gives it a lot of charm and character, but all the supporting characters are a lot of fun, and I will say, too, this movie is essentially, like we talked about, I mean, it's basically Die Hard, it's The Raid, it's Dread, it's any of these movies where, like a video game, you're essentially, like, fighting your way up a building through more and more, like, badass villains to get to the very top villain, or the opposite way, where, like, you're stuck at the top and you have to get down, you know? So it's it's very much that, and there's something so, like, satisfying about that general, really really basic premise that I love. If I could do a movie, I would love to just do that kind of movie and just, like, figure out the most die 
hard to meet Home Alone-ass ways to, like, work your way up the top. You know, it's, again, it's Bruce Lee's game of death. It's just move from one level to the next and fight the, like, harder villain as you go up. Yeah, but with 28 Days Later going on, too. Yes, yes, just everybody, like, chaos around you in every direction. And, like, even the characters have nicknames around the, the office that give them the air of a video game boss. Totally. You know, the Siren, the Reaper, so on and so forth. They're absolute caricatures, but that's what's fun about it is it is kind of really, you know, exacerbating the fact that these people are like these soulless entities at this point that don't have a real identity. So the fact that the HR guy is known as the Reaper because he's the last person you see before you're like cut from the firm or whatever, you know, it's all very appropriate and tongue-in-cheek and fun. So to run through the plot... The movie itself, like we've mentioned, starts with like a little bit of an exposition dump and a voiceover, which I appreciate this exposition dump at the beginning. You know, movies either handle this really well or they don't. This one handled it well. This one absolutely handled it well. An exposition dump like this at the beginning of a movie, it's nice because A, it really sets the tone for like what you're about to get into completely with this like really over-the-top ridiculous scene, but it also gets a lot of the technicalities of the like premise out of the way right away instead of having to stop all of the momentum later in the movie to like explain everything so you know instead of having characters stop and say oh what's going on oh well, there's this virus blah, blah, blah. yeah you haven't heard of this virus oh let's tell you about the background of this virus it's just getting all that shit out of the way right now right at the very beginning so again we have a voiceover from our main character Derek Cho played by again Steven Yen and And he's basically telling kind of the background of this virus called the ID7 virus, which they call like the red eye virus because the main symptom outwardly is just everybody has one like bloodshot red eye. Which leads to some creepy imagery throughout this movie, I might add, because every character you see when shit goes to hell in this office building has that red eye virus and some are further along than others. But there are some moments where like even just looking at a character, their eye it's really unsettling to see that one bloodshot red, pure crimson red eye, and then their normal eye. And the virus is like popping up in pockets around the world. It's not, you know, a lethal virus. Like, it's not going to kill you. Like, it's not like a thing that eventually, like, completely destroys your body or whatever, but it basically just fucks with your brain and your neural system and everything, and it just kind of blocks all the stuff that basically keeps you in check and keeps your inhibitions in line, (laughs) and your moral integrity so your whole sense of like right and wrong it basically just blocks all of that stuff right i think in the narration he talks about it releases the id in you yeah totally and it just you end up being able to act out like all the shit that you would normally want to do and all of your like dark impulses the whole tipping point of this ends up being a guy named neville reed which they bring his name up throughout the course of the story but he is the first guy who legitimately committed a murder while on this ID7 virus. So the the scene that we're seeing is this office boardroom in slow motion as all these people are like fighting each other and smashing shit and there's one couple like having sex in the corner and another guy just like screaming and spitting on people. I, I don't even know if they were having sex in the corner. I think it was like in the middle of the boardroom They were like table. on the boardroom <laughs> table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. on the boardroom table. But you see like this other guy basically like smash a dude's head through a fucking TV on the wall and kill him and 
stab his, you know, head a million times with like a pair of scissors or something. So this guy, Neville Reed, is put on trial for murder. And at the end of the day, this firm, Towers and Smythe Consulting, a lawyer at this firm, our hero Derek Cho, he basically finds a loophole where they were able to basically deem Neville Reed not liable due to the virus's influence, right? So he was under influence of this virus. He wasn't responsible for his actions. He can't be held liable for this murder. So that loophole basically catapults this law firm to like really big places. It bumps him up and gets him, you know, a corner office, which is, you know, what he always wanted. So you kind of see a montage of him like on his first day, fresh clothes, kind of dorky looking, carrying his box of stuff, getting in the elevator. And then we have another scene with him in the elevator after a few months of being there where he's just miserable and like his clothes are ragged. And then as, you know, the story progresses and this whole incident happens when he's now suddenly a big shot, you know, he's wearing really nice suit, wearing sunglasses, super hot shot. You know, he's got all the things that he wanted, you know, he's got all the fame and success and the money, but he's now just this husk of a person. So this whole opening scene does a good job of setting up all the technicalities of this virus and all the bullshit and all the backstory there, but then also kind of showing you where he is right now as a character. Right. And we just threw a shit ton of information at you. And this movie does it within the matter of minutes. Yeah. Not only does it do it in a a short and concise summed up manner, but it does it by keeping your attention, by literally showing you like you said, that scene in slow-mo of the guy committing murder, the first murder under the influence of the red-eye virus. And it keeps the audience's attention as they're giving you this information. And it's world-building, but done so well in the beginning that you just know, okay, this is basically our world with this virus, and let's go. Boom. Let's hit the ground running. Yeah. So, we kind of start with Derek getting to his office one day, and his first client that he meets with is named Melanie Cross, which, again, this is played by uh, some weaving. She is there specifically because she's trying to get an extension on her home loan. The bank is foreclosing. She's there kind of acting as somebody from the bank and he kind of sees through her bullshit and calls her on it. But in desperation, she's basically just asking him like, hey, please be a human. Like, show some empathy. Like, cut me some slack. Like, I've been dealing with some shit. Please give me one more chance. And he basically just says like, sorry, can't do it. It's not my call to make. It's the corporate Corporation. I can't go against the corporation, blah, blah, blah. And he basically just calls security on her to, like, get her drug out. Yeah, she and she's, like, dragged out screaming. And I really liked the way they set up Derek because you can tell there is a part of him that's very much self-aware that he's turned into kind of something that he hates. Yeah. But he's still, there are aspects of him that are still a good guy and he's still genuine because... He speaks up for his secretary, secretary. when that other guy is giving her shit, you know. So yeah. there's, there's definitely, like, some heart left in him. But he, like you said, he's so, he's very aware of the fact that he is, like, sold out. Yeah, and I think he really honestly even calls security on her, not because, like, she acted like somebody from the bank, but more because he just didn't have the time to deal with her, it felt like. And then, yeah, there's the other side well, of Well, yeah, it was just him, like, shitty. getting rid of her to move on because, you know, she's nothing to him and he's got to get on to better things, yeah. Yeah. From here, he kind of catches wind through the grapevine of all the office politics and all the different levels 
levels of people that he has been basically stuck with a really, really big case that got fucked up. And somebody kind of just put his name on it through some other kind of bullshit corporate legal loophole and is sticking the blame on him. And while his secretary is like telling him all this and giving him the rundown, he specifically is looking for his coffee mug. <laughs> I like that. Which I like this that. is like one of those like dumb, if you work in a corporate office environment, you've probably dealt with this before. But like he has his coffee mug. It's this one that his sister gave him. It means a lot to him. Fun thing. The mug is like yellow with a black stripe along the bottom. They purposely designed that mug to look like the infamous yellow jumpsuit that Bruce Lee wore in the Game of Death movie. And also Kill Bill. Yeah, yeah, it's the one that like Uma Thurman kind of does in Kill Bill. But again, Game of Death specifically is Bruce Lee fighting his way up the building, <laughs> going through like harder and harder like bad guys. So I didn't, re- I didn't good catch little that. Joke. Yeah, I didn't catch that. That's great. So, you know, he's looking for his mug and kind of half listening to all this until she finally just tells him like, hey, you're like supervising manager basically like shit this on you and she like put your name on it through some kind of bullshit loophole because they don't ever update this report or whatever and they haven't done it in years so she just kind of put your name on it at the last minute even though she's the one that messed it up so he gets pissed and he immediately goes to his immediate superior whose name is Kara Powell and she is kind of known as the siren because she like basically sweet talks the main head guy of the company and she kind of always gets her way through charm and subterfuge and everything else and Kara's played by Carolyn Chikese she was also in Eon Flux and Aragon and like a lot of Brit TV and indies and stuff like that she's great in this movie too I yeah. might add she is yeah. like such a soulless evil like when you think of like a shitty supervisor this is she does such a good job of portraying that yeah she, she is like the caricature of just cold corporate conniving all about her image and all about like keeping everybody under her thumb like she is just like that you know negative stereotype to a T and you can tell this actress is like having a blast really just playing that to the rafters yeah absolutely basically you know Derek confronts her tells her like hey I saw the dirty trick you played this is bullshit and she's just like cool what are you gonna do about it and he then sees that she has his mug on her desk which he also calls her out for and she kind (laughs) of shrugs it off she's like whatever my assistant just got a mug I don't care he's like but that's my mug you know so it kind of becomes this like thing that again is just rolled up in this whole ball of he can't do anything about this really and is fighting the tidal wave you know in terms of small details too like this office area anytime like the siren is on screen or like it's around her office she's always screaming at her assistant named Meg to like come in and do this come in and do that get me more coffee and it starts off like here just kind of I don't want to say harmless because she's obviously screaming at her but like you know Meg get in here do this and Meg's like right on it and then like leaves and you can tell that Meg is kind of intimidated by her this will change throughout the movie yeah she basically says cool well there's nothing you can do but like you know bring it to the boss above me you got the guts to do that and at this point Derek is just like you know what fuck it let's do it come on so they go upstairs to the next level to talk to the next boss we kind of get introduced to some like plot points during this process so there is you know an elevator there's like one central elevator that kind of goes to all the floors but past a certain point you have to have these coded key cards to get to the higher up levels and only certain people have these coded key cards right so Kara has the key card to get up to the level where the boss is at um, and then there's like you know a further set from there so they go up 
up to the office of John Towers, a.k.a. The Boss, who is played by Stephen Brand. Um, he has also been in a ton of Brit TV and then a lot of U.S. TV recently. So he seems to have kind of taken the boat over and is mostly in U.S. projects now. But the two of them basically go and try to plead their case to him. And, of course, he hears Derek's side of the story and just dismisses him. And then, of course, you know, Carol works her magic. And then, basically, Derek just finds out he gets fired. So that's that. He's going to be the fall guy for this whole fuck up. And then they basically send the HR chief, the Reaper, played by Dallas Roberts. Yeah, and like they did when they first introduced you to the Siren and then John Towers as the boss and now this human resource chief name, the Reaper. Something that this movie does anytime like one of these types of characters is introduced is like kind of give you a little bit of a montage of like yeah. what they're like and how they get this way and earn their nicknames. And at the end of the montage, it's showing a painting of them doing something that is in key with who they are as a character, which I, I loved. <laughs> Again, it's almost like a introduction to a boss fight whenever they yeah. do that. It's like a classical oil painting of them. And, you know, the one for the siren, Kara has like a snake tongue coming out of her mouth. And the one for the Reaper is him with like a cloak and a scythe. Yeah. And I think John Towers has like devil horns or something, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't remember what he had. But going back to John Towers real fast, the boss, if you thought the siren was a piece of shit, the boss is even, even more piece of shit. Yeah. Like this guy is just the evilest of corporate douchebag villains I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. I will say too, before the Reaper um, and Derek officially getting fired, after he finds out that he got stuck in this whole shithole, he goes to see one of his other attorney friends who, you know, maybe, I think they're like at the same level, probably. I don't think he was like a superior necessarily, but it's just the one dude in the office that he's buds with. And he walks in on him like doing transcendental meditation yoga and you see he's got a surfboard behind him and he's kind of a crunchy lawyer type who's trying his best to like use all these therapeutic zen things to like keep him from losing his fucking mind already and it's basically just Derek like saying like hey bro this is the situation what should I do and he's like well did you do this already Oop, well you already kind of fucked up sorry I'll do what I can to help you so there's just a quick scene of him and this guy that he's friends with when he's kind of just asking for advice first but at this point he's kind of already fucked up yeah Derek gets stuck with the whole situation he gets officially fired the HR guy the Reaper again played by Dallas Roberts who's been in a good bit of stuff he was in Walk the Line and 310 to Yuma and The Grey and The Walking Dead as well so he's the only other US actor in the movie he walks with a cane because he has kind of a crooked foot and he's very very buttoned down and very calm and very soothing and very cold and he's got a little bonsai tree on his desk that he like snips with scissors so yeah. delicately like he's just that kind of HR soulless yes sort of how you would picture a modern day Grim Reaper yeah very much a ghoul and soulless behind his eyes but very cool and collected and uh, I like how Derek mentions that the worst noise you could hear in the office is the click of his cane coming yeah. down the hallway and you hope it doesn't stop at your office where he is gonna quote unquote reap you so they get Derek to pack all of his shit and security is escorting him out of the building and right as they get to the main like lobby entrance way of this building all of a sudden SWAT team comes out of nowhere shutters go down over the doors all this you know security tape starts getting put up around the building and all these people in hazmat suits and helicopters and stuff show up and the whole building goes 
goes into like a lockdown mode. Yeah, and to backtrack a little bit, I wanted to ask you this, Mansfield, because in the earlier scene when Derek has that short meeting with Melanie and gets her tossed out, he then takes a drink from, I think, the water glass that was supposed to be like hers, but she, I don't know if she ever drank out of it. And I think he takes a sip out of that one or he takes a sip out of just a random glass of water in that room and it, it does a zoom up and it shows like the virus itself entering him basically as he's drinking. Yeah, you're you're seeing that little by little through the course of the movie where like people are kind of like sneezing and touching things or rubbing their eyes and touching things. Yeah. And there's the moment in the boardroom where he's meeting with Melanie, like you said, where they both drink from the same pitcher of water. So there's like little hints here and there that this virus is already starting to spread through this office place pretty yeah. quickly. A part of me almost thought of like my own little head theory that Melanie was the one who accidentally introduced this virus into the office building. Yeah, yeah, there's a high possibility that that's like ironically the thing that starts all of this. Yeah, That's the first time you see like a microscopic zoom in into the virus and it shows what it looks like during that scene in the meeting. So it almost made me think, oh, well, did she carry it into the building then? Yeah, well, it goes back to the thing that she tells Derek, which is, you know, no one raindrop thinks it caused the flood. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, this whole building is now under quarantine. The security people outside basically like Skype into the board of directors who are at the top of the building with the boss and tell them like, hey, we've detected that there's the virus in this building with the sensors that are in y'all's air ducts. So we're pumping in a like neutralizing agent thing like in gas form, but it takes eight hours for y'all to all be like completely neutralized and the virus to be eliminated. So y'all just got to hang tight in this building for eight hours while everybody is like slowly inoculated and like the virus is eradicated. Yeah. And John Towers is even like, how is this legal blah, blah, blah. And then they like kind of throw it back in his face and cite some kind of law that was put in effect that if office buildings are contaminated like this, they have to. Yeah. They just have to deal with it. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, almost immediately, like every character you see in this office building is starting to show signs of that red eye and almost immediately they're getting more and more emotional and outbursts and everything else. Everybody's scratching at their eyes and like rubbing their eyes like there's like an irritation and um, everybody's just getting more and more like short and like aggravated and yelling more. Yeah. The fuse is lit. Yeah. Because then you go, we go back down whenever it transitions back down uh, the floor level with Derek as he was being escorted out. Almost immediately everyone flips the fuck out. Yeah. Derek basically says, you know what? Fuck it. I'm here. I can't go anywhere. They're not going to do anything. So, like, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to protest this bullshit, like, directly to the board of directors all the way at the top to, like, try to prove that, like, I was not involved in this fuck up with this bigger corporation. Yeah, because he gets attacked by that guy that he called out who was harassing his secretary earlier. Yeah, right on his way, like, to the elevator, immediately that guy, like, goes for him. Yeah, and then, like, he gets helped by his friend that we were introduced earlier. Yeah, and his friend, we keep just saying his friend is the character's name is Ewan Niles and he was played by Mark Frost who was in a bunch of like Brit TV and indies not that Mark Frost not not like Twin Peaks Mark Frost but the actor Mark Frost but yeah and his friend helps him out and it's funny because his friend immediately like grabs him and is just like it's all bullshit the meditation all the crazy shit I've been doing none of it works I'm wound up just like you are blah 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 and them kind of talking and both like getting more and more agitated and hectic as they're talking to each other and it also reminded me I might add too of like two drunk guys who are like, I love you, man. I love you too, man. (laughs) 
that's when he decides like fuck this i'm not leaving and let's go up and confront them so on his way up the elevator before he can really get there he is taken by the enforcer guy the muscle of the building the bull the bull yeah so basically before he can even get any further they like drag his ass down to the basement and just kind of start beating the hell out of him and while he's down there you and his friend shows up to help and in them all tussling Ewan gets like shoved against the wall and like backs right up onto a long two by four that has a nail sticking out of it and it goes right into the back of his head and he dies yeah and also too this scene is a little harsh too because when they're basically torturing Derek at this point uh, the security guys they like call the boss upstairs and like basically put him on speakerphone to oh you want to listen in to hear what's happening to him yeah now that the virus is kind of taking hold everybody's getting really sadistic because everything's just kind of going to hell anyways they're like you know what fuck it we're gonna have fun for these eight hours and just beat the shit out of this guy so again Derek's friend Ewan shows up to help he gets killed on accident in the tussle and you know they end up throwing Derek kind of in this separate area tied up and he discovers oh hey Melanie's here the girl that they like were supposed to have kicked out of the building earlier they just shoved her down here in the basement in the meantime because the lockdown was happening so they kind of argue back and forth a little bit there's a great scene where like she spits on him and then he just spits right back on her and then she punches him and he punches her back so it's just the two of them like going at it for a minute and they're both just like you know what all right we're both in like shit situations let's just team up and like try to make the best of this like we're gonna go upstairs i'm gonna say my piece about my job and try to get my job back you know we'll speak up for you try to get your you know mortgage stuff reversed because the people at the top can do that you know so like let's team up and like try to make this happen to pause here for one sec because i wanted to also bring up the fact that from the boss from melanie from Derek, from the brief time that ewan was involved after the uh quarantine started they are all like heightened to 11 with their acting like yeah hyper emotional hyper aggressive so yeah that whole scene with melanie where they attack each other is hilarious but yeah they are acting like they are under the influence of a virus like a rage virus yeah everybody's just screaming at each other and really really talking shit you know when they're interacting with other characters i loved in the background how every time there's like background shots throughout the office from now on there's constantly <laughs> shit going on the yeah there's like yeah. shit on fire some people like just writing notes and putting them everywhere like fucking everywhere two people having sex at one point my favorite though was the guy who had the copy machine on fire and that was looked like he was kind of dancing around it at one point yeah there's one of like these two girls just taking paper out of binders and just throwing paper everywhere apparently the like couple that was having sex according to legend were actually having sex like they didn't (laughs) quite understand the direction of like just act like you're having sex but they were like a couple so they like actually had sex and people were kind of like what the fuck is going on (laughs) But there were some of, like, the Serbian extras. The, there was a language barrier thing there. But, yeah, yeah according yeah. to legend, that was real. But I just love some of the other dumb shit. Like, you just see people writing on their face with, like, Sharpies. And there's always people, like, punching each other and, like, pouring coffee on each other and stuff like that. Yeah, and the, the people writing stuff on their face and ripping up their clothes and stuff, it does get a little Lord of the Flies. And yeah. that becomes a great scene later on, so I won't go too much further with it. Yeah, so from the basement... 
once Derek and Melanie decide, like, okay, we're gonna, like, team up, let's try to make this happen, he finds, like, a box of old phones and bits and pieces and kind of cobbles together, like, one working telephone, and he calls Vandacorp, which is the big corporation whose whole case and all this stuff has been fucked up, right? So he calls them and kind of gives them the spiel on what happened. And we don't necessarily know that that's who he calls, but the people at the top, the boardroom and the boss, they get a call from Vandercorp from the main CEO of that company who's like, hey, so explain to me, what the fuck is this bullshit I'm hearing about y'all messing up our case and all this other stuff? And lying about it. Yeah, and lying about it. I have a call from one of your former employees who just spilled the beans on all this, so I want an explanation. And basically, you know, the boss just tries to do everything he can to cover their ass, and at the end of the day, the other CEO is just like, okay, done, we're finished, we're not doing business, terminated, you're not getting paid, like, we're out of here, right? At the end of the day, you know, now, like, the board and the boss are just furious because this is all blown up in their face and they thought they could just get rid of Derek quietly and pin it all on him. But now the whole thing is, you know, gone to hell. So at this point, everybody starts to realize at the same time, like, you know, we're under the influence of this virus. So anything that happens, we can't be held liable for. So dot, dot, dot. And the board of directors basically all decide as a group, you know, we should just kill Derek. Yeah. (laughs) So they all like, put it to a vote they all kind of give the like thumb slash across the neck and you know say yeah let's uh just go take out this Derek guy and Derek and Melanie also were just like all right we gotta fight our way up doesn't matter what happens nobody can hold us accountable like we just gotta do it so we need two key cards one from the reaper one from Kara the siren we gotta get up the elevator so we gotta get their key cards this is basically Resident Evil game yeah so they break into the locker area that has all the maintenance tools and they strap on tool belts and grab wrenches and screwdrivers and a buzz saw and Melanie gets this giant nail gun which by the way nail guns don't just shoot nails but uh <laughs> <laughs> sure okay it's a movie and in and and that montage she like shoots a nail and it impales and goes through like some wood and she's yeah. like fuck yeah so yeah for the sake of this movie we'll just ignore that convenient safety aspect of literally all nail guns but yeah they basically just gear up and make their way back out from the basement taking out and the start kind of guards. heading their way up. Yeah, they're like taking out all the security guards and fighting their way through all these other people in the office building. So the first person that they go to is the Reaper. And there's a fun little clip where you see him sitting at his desk and he's still seething and he's trying his best to like hold his shit together and he's trimming his little bonsai, but it's cutting to these flashes of him like destroying and ripping up the bonsai and like eating it. And then it f- flashes back to him like gritting his teeth with his eye twitching just barely trimming it and the music cues are funny too because when he's like trying to keep it together it's like soft calm and then like it does a quick flash to him freaking the fuck out and it's like fucking death metal yeah so they go to his office and tell him like hey we're here to get your key card and fuck you so they kind of fight for a little bit they eventually do kill the reaper with the buzzsaw um, and the fights are brutal yeah real brutal this is like 
pair of scissors through the hand, pinning Derek's hand to the desk and smashing like glasses and whiskey decanters over heads and slamming heads into desk drawers. Like it's it's fucking brutal. A thing that I appreciate too is like at one point Melanie tries to shoot the nail gun at the Reaper and he like puts up his cane and blocks it with yeah. his cane. <laughs> and they both kind of look like surprised that it happened. Yeah, it's also brutal because like then at one point he's doing making the speech about how as a human resource manager he finds it appalling that uh women aren't treated like More equals equally, in the workplace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, equally in the workplace. And like eventually she like regains composure and and yeah, he winds up eating a buzzsaw for his trouble. So Yeah, just full buzzsaw to the chest, blood everywhere, blood spraying all over her and all these other employees like watching through the door like a bunch of monkeys just flailing their hands with dollars in their hands and yelling and screaming. <laughs> yeah, and in the meantime, like again, all over these open air like in the open scenes in the office building there's fucking violence everywhere and that's kind of where a lot of the horror to me at least shines is not even so much with like what happens to the characters we're following but just I found myself re-watching a couple scenes just to see what all the background characters were doing because it's fucking bananas like yeah. it, each of them have their own little like mini plots going on in the background that I also kind of wanted to explore yeah so they get the Reaper's key card and they take the elevator to the next floor up because now they need to get Kara's key card. And beforehand, the boss and the board like kind of Skyped down to Kara and told her like, hey, whatever you do, you cannot let them get that key card. Just get rid of it, throw it away, destroy it. Like they can't get up to us. And she's like, yeah, sure. Okay, I'll do that. And then as soon as the Skype conversation ends, she's like, nope, <laughs> I'm yeah. going to keep this key card for leverage. Because even, even in the Skype conversation, she's just like, no, this is my only leverage so they don't fucking kill me. And yeah. they're like, no, you need to destroy that. Yeah, take one for the team. This is for the company. And she's like, no, yeah. fuck the team. And then, like, finally they start offering stuff. And they're like, well, what if we made you this and gave you all this money? Yeah, we'll make you partner. And she's like, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. All right. <laughs> but, yeah, as soon as the Skype conversation ends, she screams for her assistant Meg to come in and basically, like, gives the key card to her and says, just hide this. Just don't tell me where you put it. Just go fucking hide it and get out of my face. And now infected Meg has this tweakers look on her face yeah. of just almost about to snap on her yeah it's funny so initially you know they get up there and they like are waiting by the elevator because they know like eventually Kara has to come to the elevator and so they're waiting there for a minute and there's a fun character moment where they're just kind of talking and bantering back and forth but Melanie says like or Derek says like okay like top three bands go you know, there's a fun level of, like, their chemistry where there's kind of a natural, like, friendship growing between them. And this is immediately Derek's, like, again, just first impulse to, like, talk to this person that he wants to get to know better. But he does the, like, you know, top three bands, name him, go. And she's, like, Motorhead Slayer or whatever. Oh, really? You're in the metal. Yeah. What do you like? Uh, Dave Matthews. <laughs> so they just, like, talk shit about music for a hot minute. Yeah, because she starts making fun of him. And he's like, no, yeah. that's bullshit that people hate popular things like Dave Matthews and she's yeah. like, what? Did you like it in the frat house? Yeah, Dave Matthews Band is really good if you listen to the live stuff. <laughs> yeah, and then, like, later on in the next scene or so, when it cuts back to her at one point, she's, like, humming not the lyrics, but, like, the guitar rhythm to, like, a Motorhead or a Slayer or yeah. a Megadeth song, and it, again, Samara Weaving just I mean, all of them are having the time of their lives, but she especially is just very good with the mannerisms she has. When all these violent things, even when violent things kind of happen to Derek or herself, 
there's always almost like sadistic glee that she shows on her face about it. Like she's always smiling and sticking her tongue out, almost Harley Quinn-esque. Yeah. You know, they've both kind of like stripped down as well. So like Derek at this point is just wearing like his slacks and like a white t-shirt underneath his office shirts. Like he's taking like the suit and the tie and all that off. And she's basically like taking off her shoes and taking off the blouse that she was wearing just has like the undershirt and like found a random pair of sunglasses that she's wearing and smoking cigarettes. So it's the imagery, like in the character kind of look is great to both of them. It's super fun. It's very much like a deconstruction of the office worker in the same way that like Fight Club is. Yeah, it definitely has some of that. They have like all the battle damage, like they'll have black eyes and cuts or whatever of like, yeah, they got in a shit ton of fights. This whole movie is a deconstruction of the office in general. So eventually they get bored of waiting for Kara to come to the elevators. They're like, you know what? Fuck it. We just go to her office, you know, and they've been trying to avoid that because they know they have to fight their way there through all the other people on her floor. So, you know, they round a corner on their way to her office and Kara's already there with a bunch of other co-workers kind of around her as this army, you know, and they say like, all right, we're here for your key card. You know, you know what we want. So let's have it. And she's like, cool, fuck it. Y'all got to fight. Like y'all are going to make it through my people. So whatever. Yeah. Cause like there's a 10 or a hundred thousand dollar bounty if they can kill Derek. Yeah. And yeah, this is where like the Lord of the Flies kind of comes into play that I mentioned earlier because like everybody's got on like (laughs) blood like war paint or sharpie like stuff around their face yeah there's like three or four guys and uh three women and they're all they all look like office worker lord of the flies and it's a funny bit because it's almost like a western they're in between cubicles and this cubicle hallway confronting each other and they're all standing there like ready to attack and on speakerphone is that psychologist from outside with the quarantine team trying to talk Derek down and that whole dialogue bit is hilarious they do end up fighting their way through these people um and there's a great moment where right before they start Derek just kind of turns to Melanie and says here hands her like his iPod and it's like yeah put it on track three and it's the Faith No More song motherfucker um so that like is playing in the background while they're just beating their way through all these people and again it's fucking brutal it's like all of those really tangible painful kind of things that you see in movies where you just know like like exactly what that feels like it's just pairs of scissors going through people's arms and fire extinguishers smashing people's heads in and stuff like that but they fight their way through these people get to Kara's office ask for the key card and Kara's basically just like cool all right well fuck y'all I don't know where my key card is I got rid of it and they're like no you didn't they call her on that bluff and she calls her assistant in you know finally once they kind of like put enough pressure on her and her assistant Meg shows up and it's like yep here's your key card tosses it on the desk and it's just like this black shriveled up charred crisp of what was the key card Kara's like what the fuck did you do to this key card it's like oh I just put it in the microwave you know I'm just tired of how you were treating me and blah blah so you know what fuck you fuck your key card <laughs> yep yep and one, one of the more brutal kills in this movie which I thought was interesting the way they did this because this is the moment where she snaps on on the siren and she just fucking leaps on her you can sort of start seeing her attacker and like you can hear the gore of them like attacking each other but it's actually off screen yeah. what's happening to her and you find out soon that Meg straight up kills her and cuts her tongue out they never show you that part of it which I thought was really interesting the way the movie did that where it shows you everything else that happens to everyone else except the tongue getting cut out by Meg yeah so Melanie and Derek basically Skype upstairs to the board of directors and the boss 
to show them like, hey, so we're coming for y'all. You know, there's no stopping us. Say hey to Kara. And Kara's dead on her treadmill in her office while it's running. And it's just like this stream of blood coming off her head as her head's bouncing on the treadmill. Yeah, he's like, Meg is really fucking crazy and shows yeah. with the tongue and going back to Melanie's mannerisms throughout this movie like the whole time that happens she's fucking laughing and, and thinking the siren getting killed is the greatest thing ever and I love the one brief detail of Melanie like eyeballing those really nice running shoes in Kara's office that she uses on her treadmill and she like because <laughs> she's been running a barefoot this whole time John McClane style so immediately she's just like fuck it I'm taking these shoes <laughs> so once they like Skype up and show them like yep we're coming for you then the boss basically says like okay well you know what fuck you Derek and then it cuts back and you see the body of his friend Ewan laying out on the ground and he just pisses on the guy's body and kind of like a you know middle finger kind of taunt and basically just says like yeah come get us so this is kind of the like low point in the movie because they're trying to figure out like okay the key card's destroyed what do we actually do how do we how do we get up that far like we gotta do something Derek is like kind of breaking down down emotionally because he just saw him do that to his friend. Yeah. And he's like even telling Melanie like, I can't do it because this fucking virus is just amplifying my sorrow even more. Yeah. So like where you had extreme highs earlier, now you have extreme lows. And during this moment of them like having a heart to heart, they immediately flip that next switch and just start really heavily making out. And that turns into them actually like having sex. What's the song that plays during that? Well, so after they're done having sex, it just cuts to them like laying on the floor smoking cigarettes staring at the like office ceiling and it's fucking like ants marching by Dave Matthews yeah yeah, that's right I couldn't remember which Dave Matthews song it was but yeah yeah so while they're laying there they suddenly have the realization of oh wait there's another key card to get upstairs that we forgot about it's like the founder of the firm Irene Smythe we can basically coerce her into coming down and giving us her key card So the way that they kind of concoct this way of luring her down is they go to the IT guy. And so there's like one IT guy for this entire building. Which is so true, by the way, I might add. Like that is so true. Yeah, IT department is either incredibly underfunded or short-staffed or both. Yeah. So they go to him and they walk in his office and he's just like smashing a keyboard, like cursing at his computer. like, why the fuck all this? (laughs) And, you know, this is your like usual... IT guy with, you know, kind of a ratty mustache and long hair and kind of unkempt. But as soon as they walk in, he's just like, oh, hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to IT. How can I help you? And this character is actually played by Joe Lynch. So that's, that's him. And he like had like a big full beard apparently. And he just wanted to look weird. So he like shaved his beard down to just that ratty mustache. But they basically convince this IT guy who's like already pissed off and has a bone to pick with the entire corporation. They convince him to like basically tap into Irene Smythe's computer and hold all of her files and stuff hostage. And it, it doesn't take much to convince him either because he's kind of already sort of like, fuck this place. Everyone yeah. calls me about total bullshit. Like they forget to plug in their computers because they're old people that don't understand computers and all they do is bitch and moan about it. Fuck this place. Yeah. They basically Skype up to Irene Smythe's office and, you know, initially it's just kind of this like gag with the IT guy in her where he's like yeah I need you to do something real quick and I need to I need to like put this patch on your computer to like fix your computer and she's like oh finally I asked you about this forever ago 
and why isn't my email working? And Bobo is like, oh, okay, yeah, well, I'm going to fix that right now. Uh, clickety click. Okay, boom, there we go. And she's like, wait, where'd all my files go? Where You just messed something up. Where'd all my shit go? And he's just like, oh, by the way, fuck yeah. you. I have all your files. <laughs> this phone call is very reminiscent of a typical IT phone call yeah. by an employee if it was just hyper passive aggressive yeah. and then slowly built to just them straight up being like insulting to each other. Yeah. So at that point, you know, the IT guy is like, okay, well, here's Derek, by the way. He wants to talk to you. And Derek and Melanie basically tell her like, hey, we want your key card. And in exchange, we'll give you all the like decades of your client files and all of your stuff back that we now have on this laptop down here with us. We'll give all that back to you if you give us your key card. And we want you to reverse like all the contracts and stuff for Melanie's mortgage because Iron Smythe like has the power to do that. And initially she's like, no, fuck y'all. Like, why would I do that? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, anything that I do during this time period can be like basically negated by the fact that we're all under influence of the virus. So, okay, whatever. You don't have any leverage. So they decide to meet with her anyway in this boardroom. And beforehand, they like pre-set up the boardroom, tape a handgun under the table for Irene so she can take Derek and Melanie out. And then the bull and some of the other security guys are waiting off to the side to kind of ambush everybody, right? So Derek and Melanie get to this boardroom and they all sit down. They kind of start talking, start going through all the particulars again. And, you know, of course she goes for the gun under the desk and Derek's like, oh, were you looking for this? And he's got the gun. But, you know, again, they kind of restate what, you know, I just mentioned a second ago that, fuck you, I'm not giving you anything. You can't hold this against me. Whatever I sign, whatever papers for Melanie that I sign, none of that can be reversed. None of that's going to like hold afterward because we're under influence of the virus. So you don't have anything. Yeah. And with that, Melanie loses her shit. (laughs) Yeah. So Melanie like takes out a hammer and just smashes the fuck out of the laptop with all the files on it. And then immediately like it just devolves because then the bull immediately attacks Derek. Melanie and Irene start going at it and trying to kill each other. Yeah. And yeah, the fight is on. Yeah. Melanie and Irene are like smashing each other up in this conference room and Derek and the bull are fighting in like the daycare center. Yeah. Um, so there's like all these, you know, bright plastic toys and squeaky things that they're like smashing on each other, which by the way, let me back up. Irene Smythe, this character is actually played by Carrie Fox and I did not fucking recognize her, but she is in Danny Boyle's first movie, Shallow Grave, with Ewan McGregor and Christopher Eccleston, and that's a movie that is on our list for probably later. She's fantastic in that movie, and it's three roommates that deal with a fourth roommate that died mysteriously with all kinds of money in his room, so it's just them, like, going crazy for this money. But she was, like, very young redhead with short hair in that movie, and now she's in this movie, older with dark, kind of gray hair and I did not recognize her at all until I looked her up. It's funny because when I've looked up pictures of her and the other cast, even now outside of this movie, her and Dallas Roberts, the guy who plays the Reaper, both look younger yeah. outside of this movie even right now. Yeah, totally. So they're fighting in the children's daycare room, which kind of again goes towards that idea of another space that, because I mean, it's comical, but it also sort of made me think about like acts of violence that would take place in otherwise even now childish environments. And that idea alone is pretty terrifying. But on the surface level, this is a crazy fight between him and the bull. And it winds up with him killing the bull 
bolt with, I think, a screwdriver through his head. Yeah, he puts a screwdriver through his head, but the bull, once he, like, beats the shit out of him with brass knuckles and Derek's on the ground, the bull just pulls out his um, pepper spray. And this is one of those brutal moments that I was just like, ugh, because he's just like, yeah, fuck you, man. I'm going to burn your goddamn eyes out. And goes to spray Derek, but Derek basically just maneuvers himself and grabs the bull's hand just enough to just get, like, sprayed in the mouth with all this pepper spray and then with a mouthful of pepper spray just spits it right back into the bull's face instead and so the two of them are just like screaming with all this pepper spray like all over their faces but yeah he kills him with a screwdriver and manages to get out and he like scrabbles his way down the hallway to where the water cooler is and is trying to get water out of it and finally just like punctures it with the screwdriver and just lets it spray all over his face and mouth but um he makes his way back to the boardroom and finds that Melanie and Smythe are like basically done fighting. Smythe overpowered her and now has Melanie tied up. So she offers Derek a deal. No, actually, uh, I think Melanie was about to kill Smythe and Smythe offers the deal that she'll get him to the top floor in exchange. That's right. Yeah. yeah, And John Melanie, like you screw your partner and I'll let you go do what you want to do on the top floor. Yeah. Derek knocks Melanie out. Yeah. And so when she like comes to and she's like fucking pissed at him and screaming at him for betraying her and all this and that. Yeah. He walks over and kisses her very specifically and her demeanor kind of immediately changes. Yeah. And so then he goes to join Irene by the elevator. She basically like gives him what he needs to get to the top floor. She doesn't have a key card. She just has like a special access code. And it's like a one code thing. Yeah. And she wants to stay on the floor with Melanie to basically torture Melanie to death for destroying her hard drive. And then as the elevator doors are closing, Derek with a shit eating grin throws a bunch of screws and stuff at her. And then it kind of cuts back to like when he kissed Melanie, he basically dropped a screw in her mouth to show that before she woke up he sabotaged the chair and all the restraints are loose and all the screws are loose and then Irene's face just changed to horrified and you just see Melanie like a goddamn slasher film coming from the background up to her with a hammer and then cuts to black as you hear the hammer like smash into her skull yeah so they get to the top floor Derek confronts Towers and at this point again Towers is smashing TVs with his golf clubs and just doing rails of Rails of just cocaine. like reach it into his pockets and just pull it out like handfuls of coke. And I love that moment where like he's just openly snorting these huge rails of coke on the desk while he's talking to the CDC. And at one point, the CDC official is like, "Sir, what are you doing?" And he's like, "Fuck." whatever just keep going (laughs) yeah the cdc woman is like are you fucking kidding me right now yeah the whole time too the other uh they called them the nine which are like the board and the whole time they're all just kind of sitting there really fucking uneasy as he's like flipping his shit yeah he's very much acting like a scarface like when he has that mountain of cocaine he just like totally shoves his head into it and then comes back out yeah it's like cocaine all over his nose and mouth he's just lost it yeah so they get to the top It's just Derek because Melanie stayed behind to kill Irene. Yeah, that's right. So it's just Derek, but he walks in and the situation is not what he was expecting because it's towers at the end of the table with all the board around him and all the assistants around him. And they're all like popping champagne and like congratulating him and cheering as he walks in. And he's kind of confused and it's like, what the fuck is happening? And towers basically just says like, congratulations. We figured, you know, at this point you've earned it. They like throw this binder across the table 
valuable to him that has like this massive job offer where they're gonna make him partner and give him this like insane payout and all this other stuff and these two like supermodel women like walk up to him to hand him the champagne and yeah. they're like kind of whispering in his ear almost kind of like worm tongue or even like the devil just like sign it Derek to sign it almost I very much thought of like the devil on your shoulder trying to tell you to do the wrong thing and towers is like listing off all the stuff they're gonna give him like yeah you're gonna get a car and stock options and all this other stuff Derek basically just says no I'm not taking any of this and then immediately the demeanor changes for towers and you know the two women that were kind of whispering in his ear like go to kill him and he steps out of the way while one stabs the other one in the neck on accident and towers kind of just gets up rolls up his sleeves puts a huge like fistful of cocaine in his face and huffs it and gets one of his um golf clubs it's it's final boss fight time yeah so Derek has like a wrench against this uh guy wielding a golf club but they go at each other and they're beating the shit out of each other and then finally just as the quarantine's about to be lifted like the countdown is going we see it on the screen Derek has towers over the edge of the balcony and is holding him like just by the like scruff of his neck and he looks over at the other board members to like ask for permission and the board members all give him like the like thumb slash across the neck to basically just say fuck it and kill towers and of course Derek is just like yep here we go no loyalty yep throws him over the edge so in slow motion we just like see towers falling down the entire center well of this building in slow motion and we kind of see the countdown like go down at the end um and once the countdown is done and the quarantine's lifted and everybody is you know now technically legally back to normal we kind of get the ending voiceover and montage so ultimately Derek accepts the board's job offer just long enough to reverse Melanie's loan and then says fuck it I quit and so we then have like a montage of all the like aftermath of this office building getting cleaned out and all these people coming to their senses and we see again like slow motion of towers like falling down the center of the building little by little and it keeps cutting back to him like painting was that like an art class yeah 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 so we see yeah he and Melanie are at an art class and he's been painting all these people from this story and all these like events from the story little by little you had caught glimpses of of these uh, art pieces throughout the movie like when characters yeah. were introduced and everything else and uh, it's funny too because like he's also talking about like yeah you know you may think it's kind of fucked up that we murdered all these people and are now legally getting away with it but you know at the end of the day like towers fucking sucked A and B <laughs> if you want to really think about it they're now saying that such a crazy experience of the virus it was on a, such a massive scale in this office building that they were able to use the data to now develop a cure that's probably going to wipe the virus out completely yeah like a more a more effective antidote thing yeah yeah the, you know it ultimately kind of ends on this message of like do what you can to like take your life back before you just become like a soulless shill basically you know and we have this good moment of Derek and Melanie at this painting class together sitting across from each other kind of giving each other eyes a little bit and you know they basically just like both give each other the finger which is the fun part yeah you know and it doesn't like set them up as a romantic relationship per se but you can definitely tell like they're at least really good friends regardless yeah and you know it just kind of ends finally on Towers' body finally hitting the pavement and splatting right as it cuts to like the big mayhem logo over the credits that cut was fantastic because it cuts a split second millisecond even like after his body makes impact and you can see for like a split second just a blood explosion uh, yeah like yeah. his body 
body's about to explode, and then it just cuts before you can see, like, pieces going everywhere. So, that's Mayhem. Super fun, high energy, great message behind it, great characters, but a good dissection of all of, like, the bullshit fear and anxiety and stress that we all have in, like, that corporate American work culture. I definitely enjoyed it. It struck a chord with me because that's kind of sort of the situation I've been in the last couple of years is the situation that a lot of us have been in the last couple of years. So. Yeah, same. My last job that I was in for about three or four years, it was a little bit like that too. And, you know, the more I think about it too about this movie is another theme that it plays on and another fear rather it plays on is loyalty or lack thereof at a job and that a job yeah. almost does not give a shit about whatever's happening on your personal life, which is yeah. people forget is what really matters in life. The corporation itself doesn't give a shit if a family member you love is has cancer and is battling it or you lose somebody you love or whatever as long as like you're gonna get fired or suspended if you miss work days and then there's also no loyalty between like the higher ups they would be willing to basically throw people under the bus if it meant them either staying with the company or getting promoted and I'm not saying all work environments are like that because they're not most people are just trying to get by at the end of the day but there are probably quite a few CEOs that were very much Towers was a caricature of yeah, totally. I mean, after I watched this movie again, we decided we were going to do this. I literally had one of these moments with one of my like pseudo employees. Like, th- So the job that I work, I'm more a consultant in another place. So I don't necessarily like have direct reports, but I have people that are essentially kind of pseudo employees. And on my drive home, one of them like called me out of the blue and was like, hey, I'm dealing with these health problems. I just wanted to let you know. And I was like, you know, I'm not the person you need to talk to. Call your actual supervisor manager and let them know as well and he was like you know well I just I don't know man like I, I kind of have some anxiety around that and yeah I kind of feel bad about like needing to take the time off and I was like this and th- th- that's exactly what this movie is about it's just like no do not feel like you are obligated to this job if it's your health if it's your family like that takes precedence and you need to like recognize that and take that opportunity like when you have it if there's something going on don't be scared to like speak up they will be fine like at the end of the day they will be fine but there's like such that fear and anxiety that I have to be there I have to be loyal I have to like show my like hard work and dedication or they're going to like come back at me for that for some reason like that's a very real fear that so many people have it's why our healthcare system is so fucked up because people refuse to like take the time to like make themselves well and take the time off work and seek treatment because we just have this obligation to do our job and be there and everything else so it's so hard to break that uh, habit or totally. that mindset. It's so hard to not get wrapped up in that fear and anxiety, you know, especially because so many uh, people even we know, not just like Americans, not like making a statement for the whole country, but even just on people we know personally, me and you, there's probably plenty of people who like they cannot miss more than like a couple days, if even one day of work because they're making ends meet, they're going paycheck to paycheck, like they That's need, the, hard they part, need yeah. the job. And something that this movie also brought up in me was I remember attending a job conference of some kind on my last position or one of the positions before that and it was more for supervisor roles because I was I was more in a supervisory role and one of the statistics they brought up if you work an 8 to 5 or 9 nine to 5 like a, a generally accepted 5 days a week American work week you spend like I want to say it's like 70% of your wake time with your co-workers and 30% with actual friends or family or 
or even alone time for yourself. Yeah. And they were just like, yeah. And, and I think it was an HR bit. So they're like, yeah, you know, this is why we need to have a good, healthy work environment and like be friends with our coworkers or re- treat them with respect or blah, blah. And I didn't focus on that. I focused on the whole idea that we spend 70% of our waking yeah. life with our coworkers. That's horrifying to think about. Yeah. The phrase work-life balance is a phrase for a reason. And that's what's terrifying is that's not a balance. A balance would be 50-50. And it's not 50-50. If all things are equal, it would be 50-50. And it's definitely not that for sure. No. no. But yeah, this this movie does a great job of like taking apart those fears and kind of putting them in a premise where they are getting picked apart and analyzed through these like extreme circumstances. And the kind of people and the players that are involved are done in these caricatured ways where they're very, you know, relatable and satirized in a way that works for the story. But again, what I love about this story in particular is just these main characters get out at the end. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There's no bleak ending for this kind of movie. Like, I, you know, don't get me wrong. Look, I'm, I'm not a, opposed to, like, dark endings for movies, but this is specifically the kind of story that's dealing with real-world shit that, like, we all have to deal with where I want these characters to have a happy ending, you know? And it's so satisfying when they do. I'm glad that when we were doing our recommendations at the beginning of the episode that I did bring up uh, We Sold Our Souls because it's the same sort of thing where it's not a good situation, but it's not a dark ending. There is that light of hope in the darkness, basically, and in tone, at least, as a similar ending ending and I also really appreciate that quote that like because he, he does like a, a long quote about basically taking your life back and if you do sit down to watch this movie you'll know what I'm talking about at the very end because it, that quote also stuck with me for a little while not quite as much as the raindrop one um, just because that one's brought up a couple times in the movie and it's so effective when it's used by Melanie but Derek's quote at the end of the movie is also really inspiring yeah so all around final thoughts I give it thumbs up I had a fun time with this movie. Definitely recommend everybody check it out. Um, I'm excited to see what Joe Lynch does next. And I will continue to uh, keep an eye on his stuff and the uh, Movie Crypt podcast. Yeah, I had a blast with this movie. Even though, like, on a personal level, it felt more like an action movie than a horror movie. I do now understand now that I've, like, sat down and talked to you about it for this episode and had time to digest. Like, no, yeah, this is totally a horror movie as well. Cool, cool. Well, that... That wraps up another episode of Watch If You Dare. Um, you can find us on Podbean and Facebook and Twitter and Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify. You can check out my brother Jesse's music. Um, Jesse, who does our opening and closing bumps, check out his band Opossums, which is kind of doing some touring right now. Um, they are also playing Goner Fest coming up soon in September, so definitely give them a check in, uh, check out at Bandcamp. Um, you can listen to his stuff as well, his solo stuff um, under Party Gator. And uh, beyond that, we have some great movies coming up for the rest of the year. We've kind of talked through some loose plans for things that we want to do to kind of capitalize on the holidays that are it's coming up the almost rest of the Halloween year. y'all this oh, is yeah. Halloween this is Halloween we're also approaching our first year I think too yeah we're, after we're about to get to that one year mark pretty soon so that's kind of exciting we weren't necessarily you know sure what this was going to entail once we got going but we kind of figured like all right let's do it see if we enjoy it and you know kind of go from there so it's been great doing this the feedback from fans has been great 
great. I haven't been too scared yet to be run off the podcast. I haven't quit. <laughs> That's a social experiment I agree to. Well, you say that. I've been I, we've been kind of going a little bit easy the last couple episodes. So, we we got some some good shit coming the rest of the year, and we definitely have some good guests coming too. Thoman had its moments for me. So, anyway, we are watch if you dare. Definitely check us out, rate and review on all the platforms. We would really appreciate that. And that's pretty much it. And one last thing, Aaron, I just have something to tell you. No one Sally thinks it caused the Franklin. <laughs>